morning. Happy long weekend. I, I, I want to open uh, by asking this question that I think is one that's, that's fundamental for a lot of us. And, and it's this question of how do we navigate the hectic pace of life well? It just, it seems like the longer I'm alive, the more the pace of things just keeps speeding up. And, and I used to think that that was just a small talk thing that people said when they ran out of things to talk about, like the weather. Like, oh, it's September already. I can't believe it. Yeah, time just keeps speeding up as you get older. And, and I thought it was just like a thing that people say. But the longer I live, the more that I'm convinced it's true. That as you progress from one stage of life to the next, it seems like there's more responsibility, there's more things vying for your time, and it just, the, the pace of day-to-day living seems to be just getting quicker all the time. And so I want to ask that question, how do we navigate that well and do so in a way that brings about our flourishing and our best? Maybe, maybe you've had a season of life uh, that demands a, a little bit something extra of you. A season of your life where you sort of explore your capacity and maybe, maybe push your capacity a little bit. Sometimes we self-inflict this through signing up for like a half marathon or a 5K or taking on a home renovation. And you enter this season of life that for whatever reason, uh, you've decided to challenge yourself and push your capacity. I had one of these moments in college. Uh, pastor Dave, who's our community life pastor here, uh, he has this great spiritual gift of... Uh, we'll call it like schmoozing. Dave is really great at convincing you to be confident in doing something you probably have no business doing, right? So going into my junior year of college, uh, Pastor Dave uh, approached me. He's like, hey, I signed up for this sprint distance triathlon. You should do it with me. I was like, "Uh," I said, Dave, you know, I, I run a little bit. I like to ride my bike. I, I wouldn't say I knew how to swim. I knew how to prevent drowning, Okay, like, so covering any sort of long distance in, in water was not my thing unless I'm in a boat, okay? So Dave, after a while, convinced me, and in a weak moment, I signed up for this triathlon. Now, it was a sprint distance, so it means it's, it's only a 500-yard swim, 16-mile bike, and four-mile run, if you survive to the run. So I tell Dave, all right, let's do this. So the day of the triathlon shows up, and, and this is also where I was convinced that triathlon is a sport that just is made to humble you. Because I've got these like uh, spandex triathlon shorts on and this vinyl swim cap that's cutting off the circulation to my brain, I'm pretty sure. And and I go to line up and I just decide I'm going to line up at the the very last spot for the swim because I know how slow I am in the water. So the starting gun goes off. Everybody runs into the water. I follow suit and I'm swimming for everything I have in me. And, And I'm just swimming. And after a while, my arms start to burn and my legs start to burn and my lungs start to burn. And I thought, this is the moment. Jesus, I'm coming home. I can't, I'm not going to make it. And, and I look back and I had gone like 50 yards and I thought, I have to do this 10 times over to, to even survive this thing. And it's at this point, uh, I, I was in the men's heat behind us was a women's heat that started like 10 minutes after we did. And I start seeing pink swim caps fly by me as the women's heat is now literally passing me in the water. And my parents who came to watch my humiliation, they're standing on shore and they told me later, they're like, did he drown? Should we, like, my dad's like, should I take off my, should I go in the water to get him? Like, what's happening? And, and I was so exhausted that I literally just flipped on my back and started doing the elementary backstroke. And my thought was not, hey, let's get a good time. My thought was, 
please don't die. Please don't die. Just one more stroke. And, and the problem is when you're swimming backwards, you, you have no idea where you're going. And so literally the only reason I survived the swim is because every like 20 feet I would stop and I would catch my breath and I would have to realign myself because I would swim way out of the way because I'm swimming on my back. I have no idea where I'd go. So I, I would stop, catch my breath, reorient and get back on track. And that's literally the only way that I survived that portion of the event. And, and I think in a lot of ways, this is a, a, an apt metaphor for how we feel in life. That sometimes life in its hectic, chaotic, frenetic pace, it pushes us to a place beyond where we feel like we can keep up. And I think for us that God has built in this rhythm and this way of doing life where God has, has, has called us to live with these places where we stop, where we catch our breath, and where we reorient our focus. Just like I would stop swimming, catch my breath, and get back on track, there's this rhythm of life that God has called us to where we're to take a day called the Sabbath day where we catch our breath, where we reorient and get our life back on track. Because in the hectic and chaotic pace of life, it's really easy for our priorities to get mixed up and for the way that we do life to become off track. And so I want to talk this morning about how to recover this ancient biblical practice of Sabbath. The word Sabbath comes from this Hebrew word Shabbat that literally means uh, to cease. And it's this idea of ceasing from the normal rhythm and the normal flow of life to have this intentional, purposeful investment in re and resting and reflecting on who God is. The first time that we see the idea of Sabbath explicitly commanded in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Let me just read this to you. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And so there's this moment where God gives this command to the people of Israel. He says, for six days, take six days to do all the things that you need to do. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, literally the ceasing day, Shabbat, to cease from your labor is this rhythm. It's this moment of stopping, of ceasing, of catching our breath and reorienting our life. And this morning, what I want to talk about are, are what are the rhythms of Sabbath? What, what, what are we doing here? Because too often I hear Sabbath used in a way of, of just passive not engaging in activity. The Sabbath is not a passive moment of just saying, okay, I'm going to sleep in till 10 o'clock and watch Netflix for eight hours. That's not a Sabbath. Sabbath is this sacred moment where we cease from the normal rhythm and flow. And did you notice it says the Sabbath is to be holy. When something is holy, it's set apart for a specific purpose. It's kind of like my grandma's dining room. I remember growing up asking my grandma this question. I said, grandma, why do you have two tables? There's the table in the kitchen that's small, and there's a big table in the other room that seats like 20 people. Why do we have two tables? And Grandma said, well, and, and I said, why do we never eat at that one either? We never eat at the big one. And Grandma said, well, you know, that's the one that we eat at for special occasion. It's, it's got a special and a specific purpose. So the whole family at Thanksgiving can gather around this big, long table because it has a specific, set-apart, kind of sacred purpose in the life and rhythm of our family. When, when we talk about the Sabbath being holy, what we're saying is there is this day, there is this point in time that is set apart. When something is holy, it's set apart for worship to God. There's this moment in time that is set apart to intentionally reflect on who God is and in intentionally invest our lives in spiritual growth. 
So why is this so important? I think the Sabbath rhythm is so important because it's so easy for us to get swept up in the, the current of culture and the rhythm and flow of how culture would have us function. And so I, what I want to do is I want to flesh out for us what's the rhythm of culture that, that we feel trapped in? And then how does Sabbath begin to redefine and realign the rhythm of how we do life? There's a pastor and a professor by the name of Dr. Henry Nowen who talks about three places that he says uh, in our culture we tend to draw a sense of identity and meaning and purpose. And for Dr. Nowen, he suggests that we tend to draw a sense of identity, meaning, and purpose from what I do, from what I have, and from what others say about me. And he says, in these three places, we have a sense, we, we begin to build a sense of our worth and we begin to build a sense of self-identity. And so when we think about what I do, these are the roles that we find ourselves in. And so maybe you're the leader of a company or you're in mid-level management or you're on the manufacturing line of, of a place here in town. Maybe you're a stay-at-home parent, but we have these roles and we begin to define a sense of our identity based on what we do. Secondly, he says in our culture, we tend to, to build a sense of our worth and our identity based on what we have. And here he means our material possessions. And, and I think, honestly, in our culture, uh, this is one of the great scorecards of life. You can tell how you're doing and where you're at based on how big your house is and how many toys you have. And you've got the boat and the jet ski and the, the suburban to pull those things. You're, you're probably doing okay. He says, thirdly, we tend to draw a sense of identity and meaning and purpose from what others say about us. And so our, our reputation and the persona that we project and the perceptions that people have of us become really important. What happens then is we spend our time and our energy in life in three key things. We become focused on what we can produce. Do I have power and influence to get things done? How productive am I? And so no matter your role, we feel like we have to justify who we are and what we do in our role. If you're the CEO, you go, well, I run the company. I make things happen. If we're a stay-at-home parent, we feel like we have to justify, well, I'm investing in my family and I've got this important role. And we always feel like in an effort in our culture to be seen as productive, we're constantly justifying what we can bring to the table. When we talk about what we have, we spend a lot of our time investing in what we possess. It's not just the acquisition of possessions, but once we have them, it's time, energy, and resources spent upkeeping them. I searched online and I found this USA Today article that said, in the state of South Dakota, the average person with credit card debt carries a balance of $5,692. And I think part of what drives our debt is our attempt in our possessing of things and drawing identity and purpose from what we have. It's a keeping up with the Joneses that causes us to overextend our means because what I possess and how I possess it says something about who I am. But then we get to this place, what others say about me? And we spend a lot of our time not just producing and possessing, we spend a lot of our time performing. Because we have to live up to the expectations that people have about us. After all, what if my reputation would get tarnished? So these, these expectations that people have, I must perform to live up to their expectations on me. And so we spend a lot of our time in life producing and possessing and performing. And this starts to feel like uh, an endless treadmill leading nowhere that we can't keep up with the pace on. I, I remember this moment growing up. Our, our family was, we were at dinner at somebody else's house. And my younger brother, I think, was like eight or nine at the time. 
So I would have been like 12 or 13 and we're, we're finishing dinner and my brother, you know, we're in this other person's house. He's just kind of looking around and he sees that they have this really nice, like expensive treadmill in the corner. So he's eight and he's stepping on this thing and he's hitting buttons. And there's this little button called the quick start button. And what the quick start button does is when you push it, it starts up at the speed um, that the last person programmed it to. So my eight-year-old brother steps on this treadmill. He hits the quick start button and I hear it like beep and come to life. And I see my brother like feverishly running because he, did, he panicked. He didn't, he didn't know to step off to the side. So he's feverishly running. And all of a sudden from the other room, I just see this, my brother gets shot off the back end of this treadmill, right? And it, now on the other side of this, I'm like, what did my parents say like to the people whose house we were at? Like, oh, that, don't worry, that's just our son. He flew off your treadmill, no big deal. Uh, I mean, how do you recover from that? But it was this moment where my brother, he was feverishly running. He couldn't keep up with the pace and he just got shot off the back end of this thing. And I think for some of us, this rhythm and pace of life to produce, to possess, to perform, it starts to feel like this rhythm that we don't know if we can keep pace with, but we're worried that if we rest, we're going to get shot off the back end of this thing. And what if I lose a position of power and influence because I just can't keep up with the rhythm? And so I can never rest because I always have to be working because people need to see me as powerful, as influential, as productive. And I have to keep working so that I can possess nice things so that I can perform to the expectations that people have of me. And these three things start to work together to become a rhythm and pace of life that we were never meant to live. And, and the, the, the challenge with this is that pursuing depth and meaning and purpose and significance in life, apart from God in these things, always leads to restlessness. Because the challenge is that enough is never enough. There's always somebody who's more productive than me. There's somebody who's got a, the, a fancier job title with the corner office that, that makes more money, that has more power and influence. There's always someone who has more material possessions than I do. And so I can never keep pace with the things that they're acquiring. And in the expectations of people, whew, don't even get me started there. It seems like the expectations of people are always changing. And so this idea of, of performing to project a certain persona so people think well of me, this just gets exhausting because enough is never enough. And the people of Israel, in, in the story of Exodus, which by the way, the story of Exodus is the first time we see this language of, of Sabbath, of Shabbat, of ceasing uh, being spoken. And, and it comes because the people of Israel, if you read Exodus chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, you'll see that the people of Israel were in a place where the Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh came to power, and the Pharaoh of Egypt enslaved the people of Israel. And he said, I'm going to work you tirelessly and mercilessly to build these great storehouses. Now, what the Pharaoh of Egypt did is he used that slave labor to build these literal cities that their job was to hold surplus grain and things in possession. Because the Pharaoh needs to be someone who can produce for his people. He needs to possess power and wealth to be seen as influential on a global stage. And he needs to be seen as someone who conformed to the expectations of what a Pharaoh should be. And so in order to meet those expectations, the Pharaoh enslaves the people of Israel and works them tirelessly and mercilessly. And the people of Israel on a grand scale found themselves in a place where they were asked to produce, to possess, and to perform in a way that they could never keep pace with. So how do we navigate this? One, one of the things that 
I think we've tried to do in an attempt to this is we say, okay, this, this call to produce, to possess, to perform, it's overwhelming. And so there's this language that we use a lot of self-care. And we talk about how important it is to take care of ourselves. Now, this language of self-care I think is important. I think it's important that we holistically live a life that's well and a life that brings about our flourishing. The problem is I think much of our talk about self-care is actually secular language about how I in my own strength and energy can take care of myself and cultivate health in my own life. And by the way, I think we we misuse this idea of self-care because we we run ourselves so ragged that we get home at the end of the day and our self-care starts to look like, I'm going to binge watch the next season of whatever came out on Netflix. And if you're like me, there's many times where I find myself watching obscure documentaries about things that I have no idea about, right? Because it's on and because I'm tired and because just engaging in anything feels so exhausting. And so self-care looks like, looks like not soul-filling things, but it's soul-numbing and self-medicating for many of us. And so we develop unhealthy relationships with food or with alcohol or unhealthy relationships with hobbies that we give ourselves to. And they they simply become soul draining moments of trying to numb the exhaustion that we feel the other days of the week. And what I want to challenge us to this morning is to integrate the Sabbath as a rhythm of soul care into our concept of self-care. Because for me, self-care doesn't go far enough. Without this rhythm of Sabbath, and we'll talk through these rhythms in just a second, the Sabbath is fundamentally about how do we care for our souls on a spiritual level. So it's not just self-care. It's we have to integrate the practice of Sabbath into our concept of soul care. And I think as we look at the biblical example of what Sabbath is, God gives us these rhythms. And the first rhythm of, of Sabbath is this idea of rest. And in Exodus chapter 16, uh, God fleshes out the purpose and the significance of rest on the Sabbath in the story of the people of Israel. Now, at this point in Exodus chapter 16, the people of Israel have have been set free from slavery in Egypt. Uh, Moses and Aaron, on, on God's behalf as his spokespeople, have worked tirelessly to bring the people of Israel to freedom out of slavery. And so in Exodus 16, they're at this point where God is leading them to the promised land. He's uh, saving them from slavery. Exodus 16, verse 1. It says, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And this way I will test and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Verse 21 says, each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you were to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why in the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. So here's the nation of Israel. And, and, and mind you, at this point, the people of Israel have seen miraculous things. They've seen 10 plagues that God brought on the Pharaoh so that he would let them go. They watched God part the Red Sea and their entire nation of Israel walked through what used to be an ocean on dry ground because God parted it for them. The people of Israel have seen miraculous things and now God is leading and guiding them and directing them. And what does he do? God leads them right into a desert place. Now, the challenge of the desert is that the desert does not have an abundance of resources. Water is scared and food is scarce. And the tension that the people of Israel feel is, how do we find enough? How do we provide and produce enough food to feed our families? And see, here's the challenge with producing, possessing, and performing. These things are not entirely wrong. These are very real tensions that we feel. The problem is these three things come to drive our entire existence. And life becomes only about this. So the people of Israel, they feel this tension. How do we provide for our families in the desert? And they immediately get angry. And what do they say? They go to Moses and they say, oh, Moses, we get it. So your big plan this entire time, free us from slavery so you could what? Look at verse four. So you could starve us to death in the desert. Thanks for nothing, Moses. And they say, at least if we were in Egypt, there we had pots of meat. And I imagine in their mind, they're thinking of Egypt like the Carnival Steakhouse in Suvals. Have you been there? You pay one flat fee and they bring you endless meat. It's kind of amazing and gross all at the same time. And they're picturing Egypt like, it was like a meat buffet all the time. We sat around pots of food and we ate our fill. They're not remembering correctly. Egypt, they were worked mercilessly and bitterly as slaves. But now they're in this place where they can't provide for themselves. And God says, I I love, if you don't think God is gracious in the Old Testament, read the book of Exodus. Because if I'm God in this point, I'm like, I smote Egypt, I'm going to smite Israel now. Because they think I just let, like, seriously, you're not gracious? But it says in verse 4, I love this, it says, they, they complain against God, you let us out here to starve, and God says, oh buddy, you ain't seen nothing yet, I'm going to literally rain down bread from heaven. I mean, how amazing is this? In the middle of a desert where there is no food, God literally rains down bread from heaven, and he begins to provide for the people of Israel. Now, the, the catch is, they can only gather enough for one day. And, and the idea behind this is that each day God provides just enough for one day. And so every day the people wake up and have to trust, God, I trust that just today you'll provide. And then God says this, he says, but on the sixth day, I want you to gather twice as much because on the seventh a day of rest, nothing will be found and you have to trust my provision. And so the rhythm of Sabbath becomes a season of rest in which we are reminded that we can trust that God will provide. Because what we miss is that over and above what we produce, what we possess, and how we perform, over and above all of this is God's presence, God's power, and God's provision. Literally, none of this happens unless we recognize that God has literally given us the gift of life and existing And in the Sabbath rhythm, the people of Israel can say no to producing, possessing, and performing in this moment. The reason they can rest is they can say, we trust that God will provide for our needs. 
And I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes the reason we don't feel like we can say no to this current of culture is we think it all depends on our ability to make it happen in our own strength. And we fail to realize that it's God's presence, power, and provision that actually makes all of life happen. And so this rhythm of having a day where we say no to the current of culture, to say yes to resting and reflecting on who God is, becomes a moment that safeguards our sanity. I think, too, what happens in this Sabbath rest is we literally follow God's example. Let me read for you out of Deuteronomy, or Exodus chapter 31, sorry. Exodus 31, 16 says, The Israelites are to observe this Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Catch this. And on the seventh day God rested and he was refreshed. Literally, we rest following the example of the creator of the universe. And listen, in my mind, creating the world out of nothing is fairly important work. Can we agree on that? Like speaking all of creation into existence, as Genesis tells us, that seems fundamentally important. And listen, if God's work of bringing all creation into existence, as important as it is, if God can rest on the seventh day, there's nothing we're doing that's so important that we can't also take a rest. One of the things that God reminds me over and over and over again is how little things depend on me and how much it utterly depends on God's grace and on his provision and on his presence and power. I think the other thing that resting does is it cultivates in us a spirit of dependence. Because we recognize in resting, what we recognize is if God is going to provide, we have to depend on each day for God to bring just enough. But our culture is so independent. I mean, in American culture, it's this idea that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. With enough time, energy, ingenuity, and resources, we'll find a way. But spiritual maturity is not about living in independence. Spiritual maturity recognizes our utter dependence on God's presence, power, and provision. And the Sabbath rhythm of saying no to this endless cycle and of saying yes to rest and reflection on who God is becomes a moment of depending on God to be a person who provides for us. The second key uh, rhythm of Sabbath is remembrance. You'll notice in the, many of the texts that we've read, God begins by saying, remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Again, in Exodus chapter 31, God says, observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. He says, the Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for all generations. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, as God talks about uh, the importance of the Sabbath, he says, on the seventh day, uh, it's to be a Sabbath day. On it, you shall not do any work neither the foreigners among your animals, anything. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to keep a Sabbath. There, there's two fundamental things. If you look at the Sabbath passages, the Sabbath passages ask us to reflect on creation and ask us to reflect on the Exodus story of the people of Israel being led out of slavery. And did you notice in the Deuteronomy passage, it says that the continual remembrance of Sabbath is a symbol of the covenant relational promise between God and his people. And so Sabbath is not just about ceasing from labor to rest and reflect on who God is. Sabbath is also about this fundamentally remembering of who God is and what he's done for us. Every day, the people of Israel had this day where they stopped working and they remember, God, I remember that you are the God who created all things. God, I remember that you led us out of slavery in Egypt. 
And listen, when we think of remembrance, we often think of remembering as a passive thing. But I want to think, think of remembering like your anniversary, if you're married. On, on my anniversary, Lauren and I will be married 10 years in January. And on January 23rd, on our anniversary day, if I stop in the morning and take five minutes and go, you know what, I'm just going to remember our marriage. Yeah, that was good. And then I go on with the rest of my day. <laughs> then I'm going to have a lesson in conflict at the end of the day, <laughs> right? Because the idea of, of an anniversary is, is to remember your story of life with this person that God has brought you with. But listen, remembrance is not just a cognitive process. Remembering is actively commemorating the rhythm of how we do life in that moment, what's actually happened. And so on our anniversary, Lauren and I will probably celebrate by getting a babysitter and having a date night and having time for her and I just to connect and together in relationship, we'll actively remember and commemorate our life and story together. The rhythm of Sabbath is not just to think of up here about what God has done. It's to say no to the rhythm of life, to step back and say, God, I celebrate and worship you for who you are and what you've done in our life. And so it becomes an active moment of remembrance, of reflecting on who God is and what he's done for us. And this literally reorients our life. It reminds us that it is not all about what we produce, what we possess, and how we perform, but it's a reminder, no, it's our God who provides. And, And by the way, church, this is why we worship every Sunday. Because as we worship collectively, what we're doing as a community is we're retelling this narrative story of God's redemptive action among us. First hour, I wrote down some of the lyrics that we were singing this morning. So in one of the songs, we sang this. We sang, the Lord is with me. He will not forsake me. Your presence goes before us. Your glory has no end. God, you never leave me. And and we don't sing those because it's a catchy rhythm and because it's got a nice rhyme to it. No, we sing those because collectively what we're doing is we're remembering and commemorating as a community God's saving and redemptive purpose on our behalf. And so for the people of Israel, every Sabbath day when they said no to the rhythm of culture, when they ceased from their labor to work and they actively remembered, it was an important reorienting moment of being reminded of what God had done on their behalf. And I think sometimes for us it's important to stop, to catch our breath, to remember who God is and what he's done for us and how that fundamentally reorients our life. And, and in this way, I think the Sabbath rhythm is not just about rest and remembrance. I think the Sabbath, the Sabbath rhythm is an act of resistance to our culture. Because the Sabbath rhythm in ceasing from our labor, the Sabbath rhythm in remembering who God is and what he's done for us, the Sabbath rhythm says no to this process. The Sabbath rhythm says, I am more than what I produce, I am more than what I possess, and I am more than how I perform. The Sabbath rhythm says, I recognize that I live and have my existence in the hands of a loving God who is my father and who provides for me and who is all powerful and a good God in whom I can trust my life. And it's an incredibly important moment of saying, this is not the totality of our existence. And Sabbath says, I am more than what I produce, more than what I possess, and more than how I perform. And apart from that, it's so easy to get sucked into this that life becomes all about it. The other thing that you'll find in the Sabbath texts is this rhythm of not just rest and remembrance and resistance, but one of relational gathering. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 3, it says, There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest. Catch this, a day of sacred assembly. A day of holy assembly. 
Church, I think there's something powerful about gathering like this as a body. For one, we encourage one another. For one, as we worship, we collectively retell the story of God's redemptive purpose on our, on our life. And this becomes an anchoring moment where we look and we see around us the community of Christ followers, of people who have experienced God's goodness. And it becomes this encouraging moment, this anchoring moment in our life that keeps us oriented in the right direction. And the other thing it reminds us of is in in the sacred gathering. For the people of Israel, they gathered together as a community and they gathered at the tabernacle because the tabernacle, uh, which was sort of like a mobile temple, the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt among them. And so for the people of Israel, a sacred assembly was an assembly together with one another, but also an assembly in the presence of God. And so this moment of Sabbath rhythm, what it reminds us is to say no to producing, possessing, and performing and reminds us that we are fundamentally first and foremost relational people. Listen, the question of can I encounter God in the deer stand just as much as I can on Sunday morning, I say a profound no to that because I need the community of believers that becomes a sacred assembly empowered by God's power and presence in a sacred way in this moment. So let me ask you, let me leave you with this question. What does the rhythm of Sabbath look like in your own life? And I think what what I I sometimes lament about this is the Sabbath is all wrapped around with these sort of legalistic ways of observing it. You know, we could, there's all sorts of rules and lists and do's and don'ts that, that the ancient Israelites had about the Sabbath. And so sometimes the Sabbath feels like this sort of legalistic thing. So I have to take a day every week and, and have this moment to reflect. But what we recognize in the new covenant of the New Testament is that Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. This is no longer a legalistic ritual that we have to perform, but it becomes a fundamental rhythm of relational connection with a relational God. And so I want to ask you, what does that Sabbath rhythm look like in your life? How in the rhythm and flow of each day can you carve out Sabbath space to rest and remember who God is, to resist the culture that would tell you your identities about what you produce, what you possess, and how you perform? Jesus makes this statement in the New Testament in Mark 2, 27. He says, people were not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for people. In Exodus chapter 16, we're reminded, it says, God gave you the Sabbath. And this idea is that Sabbath rhythm is a gift of God's grace. And listen, church, Sabbath is so important because our sanity and well-being hangs in the balance. Every day, culture is pushing us in a direction to live based on what we produce, possess, and perform. And that is not how God designed or created us to live. It is first and foremost with relationship with him and relationship with one another And the rhythm of Sabbath reorients us in that direction. So reflect on that this week. What does that look like for you? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather as your people and to reflect on on the truth and the beauty of your word. And God, we recognize this morning that the pace of life and the pace of culture, it just, it's, it's hectic and it's chaotic and it just at times seems frenetic. And God, in the middle of that, you're a God who you consistently call us back to yourself. And God, I pray that in this this idea of the Sabbath, that we don't see a legalistic ritual that we have to do, but God, I pray that in this idea of the Sabbath, that we see a life-saving rhythm of relational connection with you and with others. And so God, I pray that we would be intentional. It's not about finding time. I pray that we would be intentional to make time 
to engage with you and to find the life and the flourishing that only you can bring, Jesus. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.